0: I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian.
1: I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And
0: you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. Hello. Today, we have a case presentation for you. As always, all of the cases that we present are anonymous. That means that the name of the pet has been changed. And we hide the identity of the owners and the veterinarians. And key details have been changed to make it less recognizable. But those details will not alter the outcome of the case. JJ is going to read our case today.
1: Our case is about Buck. Buck is a three-year-old, 105-pound yellow Labrador retriever who is being presented on emergency. Uh, The owner suspects that Buck has had a seizure the pet cannot ambulate and is only minimally responsive. The patient must be carried into the hospital on a stretcher, so a triage examination is performed right away. Buck is in a stupor. Palpebral reflex is present, but Buck does not react appropriately to sound or stimulation. His mucous membranes are muddy and tacky, and his heart rate and respiratory rate are elevated. He is intermittently vocalizing, uh heart and lug sounds are normal, abdomen palpates normally, buck is overweight with a body condition score of eight out of nine, and the rectal temperature is hundred and eight degrees.
0: That is very hot. Yes. Hot, hot, hot. That is uncool. <laughs> so I'm guessing that right away the veterinarian, before even talking to the owner, since this one came in on emergency, is gonna order some like initial some initial things. Mm -hmm. So what did they do for Buck right away? Uh,
1: They placed an IV catheter, um, did a shock rate of crystalloid fluids. Rubbing alcohol was applied to the paw pads and ear pinna. And the patient was draped in towels, soaked in cool water, and placed in front of a fan.
0: Okay, all important cooling measures. So that's, that's good. Okay. So now I think we need to talk with the owner more about what exactly happened. The owner mentioned he thinks the pet had a seizure. Mm-hmm. So we need to find out, like, what exactly happened so that we can know how best to treat Buck. Mm-hmm. So what did the owner say?
1: The owner reported that the patient collapsed while on a run. Uh, today is the first truly warm day of spring in Alabama, and the temperature outside is a nice 85 degrees with 75% humidity. That's kind of low for us.
0: Yeah, 85 <laughs> degrees Fahrenheit, for just because we have people that you still see us. Yes, 85 Fahrenheit. degrees Fahrenheit. Which, um, yes, for spring in Alabama, that's not that outrageous. Mm-hmm. But okay, but they're saying it's the first warm mm-hmm. day. Yeah,
1: okay. I mean, if you're used to sixty five degrees Fahrenheit in the house, that's it is a jump. Mm-hmm. So the owner exercised the pet for about two hours on a local greenway during the heat of the day from noon to two p.m. Good lord, that's a lot mm-hmm. of time. Yep. Um, the owner reports that the patient does not typically exercise. However, they were both going to start a new diet and exercise plan that day. <laughs> oh, no. Mistake. Yeah. <laughs> the owner reports that the pet was running and suddenly became woozy and fell over. The patient didn't have any tremors or shaking associated with the collapse. The owner carried the pet from the trail they were running on back to the car, then raced to the animal hospital. Uh, Since the uh, patient weighs over 100 pounds, and they were quite a distance from the trailhead, it had been approximately one and a half hours since the patient first collapsed. And the patient has no history of previous collapse or any previous neurologic episodes. Oh, boy. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, let's go through our differential diagnoses based on our initial exam and the history. So... Uh, first one heat stroke. Mm-hmm. I think he checks one hundred percent of the boxes for heat stroke. Uh-huh. I think that's what it is.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would have had one too. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. I wouldn't have lasted five minutes. Somebody would be scraping me off the pavement.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So heat stroke, very concerning for heat stroke.
1: Mm-hmm. Probably not a seizure. I know. A- Many owners think any type of collapse is a seizure, but that doesn't sound like what happened in this case, given the owner's description of events. It is important to note that hyperthermia can sometimes cause seizures, and seizures can also cause hyperthermia. Um, in this case, heat stroke seems the most likely due to the clinical presentation.
0: Yeah, I agree that a seizure seems unlikely. It sounds like the owner is thinking, oh, it must be a seizure because the pet collapsed, but he said, you know, the pet wasn't having any uncontrolled tremors or shaking or anything like that, Mm -hmm. doesn't really sound like a seizure, but really elevated body temperature can cause seizures and prolonged seizures can cause elevated body temperature. So it Mm -hmm. might be worth digging into that history a little bit more. But let's go ahead, though, and go through a couple of other differentials for high body temperature, even though it's really suspicious for heat stroke. We we always want to keep some other things on our mind.
1: So, fever, for example, from an infectious illness or infection in the body, like sepsis?
0: Like, we can't necessarily rule that completely out at this time, but mm-hmm. it doesn't really fit with the history, like, of the dog being fine and then collapsing. So, mm, yeah. I think it's less likely. Mm-hmm. Head trauma has been reported to be associated with the development of hyperthermia. Although that seems unlikely in this case, the owner was with the pet when he became ill, no history of head trauma was mentioned. And on physical exam, we didn't see any evidence of head trauma. Mm-hmm. So I think that's unlikely.
1: Um, malignant hyperthermia is, is another differential for extremely elevated body temperature. However, it's typically associated with exposure to certain drugs, particularly halothane anesthesia. Again, not likely in this case.
0: Yeah, so... When we're thinking overall about the causes for extremely elevated body temperature, mm, heat stroke super fits and everything else is kind of like eh, less likely. Less likely.
1: Okay. So let's talk about heat stroke and why it happens.
0: Okie doke. Well, before we can understand heat stroke and how it happens, we first need to talk about what normally keeps body temperature regulated. Some of the ways that the body normally dissipates heat include radiation, that's loss of infrared heat waves, conduction, which is transfer of heat between two objects that are in direct contact with one another, convection, which is heat loss by airflow, and evaporation. The primary methods for heat dissipation in dogs and cats are evaporation and conduction. Normally, more than 70% of a dog's total body heat is dissipated through radiation and convection from body surfaces. But as ambient temperature increases above the normal body temperature, evaporation, primarily through panting, becomes more important for maintaining a normal temperature. The interior of the nose is really important, too. Inside the nose, the nasal turbinates provide a large surface area for water loss from the moist mucous membranes, and this plays a major role in heat dissipation. Or we should say it plays a major role in dogs with a normal nose size. (laughs) So like brachycephalic dogs, that's any type of dog with a smushed face like a pug or a bulldog, those sorts of dogs. Well, they can't do this as well because they just don't have the same type of surface area as a nice, normal, long-snouted dog would have.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Hypersalivation can increase evaporative efficiency. However, high temperatures in humidity above 35% decreases the effectiveness of this method. And in humidity over 80%, this cooling measure is negated. So in... um. <laughs> like Alabama, where it's over 80%, like, all oh, most of the time, mm-hmm. it's, it's less helpful. In heat stroke, also called heat prostration, patients will have a severe elevation in body temperature. So usually it's higher than 105.8 degrees Fahrenheit. And this is due to exposure to a hot or humid environment or strenuous exercise or both things together. Non-exertional heat stroke is the type that occurs in a hotter, humid environment. An exertional heat stroke is the type that occurs from strenuous exercise. Now, severe uncontrolled seizures or tremors can also create elevated body temperature, as we mentioned a little bit earlier. Now, heat stroke occurs when the body can no longer use those normal mechanisms to dissipate heat effectively.
1: It's important to remember that a high body temperature and heat stroke is not the same thing as having a fever. In patients with a fever, pyrogens raise the set point for the core body temperature to an abnormal level, which creates a higher body temperature. However, patients with heat stroke still have a normal thermoregulatory set point, but their body temperature becomes elevated because they cannot dissipate the heat effectively. So now that we know what heat stroke is, let's talk about how it happens.
0: Okay, everybody buckle up for a second because we're going to go through a lot of information in a like short <laughs> to moderate amount of time, okay? Because this is a complicated cascade of badness that happens when the body gets way <laughs> too hot.
1: Cascade of
0: badness. It is, it is. So when the body temperature becomes dramatically elevated, this creates inflammatory coagulation and tissue disorders and multiple organ systems are affected the critical temperature at which normal cellular enzyme activity and cell membrane stability are altered is 109 degrees Fahrenheit. That's like when, I mean, basically your cells are melting. That's super yeah. bad. When we're in that in-between range from like, we'll, we'll say roughly 106 to 109 degrees, there are multiple changes that the body goes through that contribute to heat stroke. So in the early stages of heat stroke, cardiac output, Increases because of peripheral vasodilation. That means that your blood vessels in the periphery dilate, and our heart essentially has to work to, to make up for that. We also see pulling of blood in vessels, both cutaneously, so that's the vessels in the skin. And the splanchnic blood vessels, those are blood vessels that supply organs on the inside of the body. So because these vessels are now wider, they've dilated, the blood is pooling in these areas. Dehydration develops, and both dehydration and blood pooling contribute to hypotension, that's low blood pressure, and hypovolemia, that means uh, we don't have the same amount of uh, circulatory volume. Cardiac output then decreases in response to the decreased circulating volume. This leads to an inability to dissipate heat through radiation and convection mechanisms. The body temperature then continues to increase, and this causes problems with the platelets. So the platelets are those cells in the body that clump together to form clots. The platelets start to stick to one another when the body gets hot enough. There's also activation of the coagulation cascade and increased fibrinolysis. Pro-inflammatory cytokines and reactive oxygen species are generated, so there's major inflammation in the body. Endotoxemia and endothelial injury also contribute to increased vascular permeability and interstitial edema. And we can, because of this huge cascade of crap... We get effects on some common organ systems, okay? So common complications of heat stroke include acute kidney injury, DIC, which is disseminated intravascular coagulation, essentially a terrible disease in which all of the blood starts clotting inside of the vessels. That's super bad. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: We can have acute lung injury, develop acute respiratory distress, develop rhabdomyolysis, which is like muscle tissue breakdown, and that can further damage the kidneys. Mm. And then the GI tract, central nervous system, kidneys, lungs, and coagulation systems are all affected. The GI issues that we can see are mostly caused by hypovolemia and hyperthermia. That creates increased intestinal permeability and we can have bacteria moving from inside of the GI tract where they're supposed to be to outside of the GI tract where they're dangerous. That can then create endotoxemia. GI bleeding is common, and it might be manifested as bloody diarrhea and or bloody vomiting. The central nervous system is affected due to cerebral hypoperfusion, basically not enough blood going to the brain. Edema and hemorrhage, neuronal necrosis, and vascular thrombosis. So we're getting like clots in the brain. And all of this can lead to disorientation, stupor, seizures, and coma. The kidneys are affected due to a number of factors, including decreased blood flow. And that decreased blood flow is the result of hypovolemia and dehydration. And we can also see damage to the kidneys from direct thermal injury. It's just too flipping hot for them. Then We start to have myoglobinemia due to breakdown of muscle tissue, aka rhabdomyolysis. That further damages the kidneys. The process of disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC, impacts the kidneys. Endotoxemia and systemic inflammatory response syndrome also impact the kidneys. So the kidneys are just like set up to fail here.
1: Poor kidneys.
0: Yeah, poor kidneys. Then we have cardiopulmonary complications. So direct thermal injury can lead to myocardial hemorrhage. That's, that's bleeding of the heart muscle itself and necrosis. Okay, the tissue starts to die. Cardiac arrhythmias can result from the systemic changes associated with heat stroke. Up to 25% of heat stroke patients develop a cardiac arrhythmia. Pulmonary edema, that's fluid inside the lungs pulmonary infarcts, that's like a blood vessel gets clamped off and that part of the tissue is not getting oxygen. An alveolar hemorrhage, bleeding in the alveoli, can also occur. Coagulation disorders are also common. In one study, 51% of the dogs with heat stroke were diagnosed with DIC, and thrombocytopenia, which is a low platelet count, was present in over 80% of patients with heat stroke. So those coagulation issues are, are very common with this process. Now, patients with heat stroke tend to share some common history.
1: I'm just going to list them real quick. Being enclosed in a vehicle, and one study used to show that this was the most common cause of heat stroke. Exercise strenuously, exposed to sun without access to shade, routine exercise or activities during the first few spring or summer days of high heat and humidity because the pet is not acclimated. Uh, transportation to an area with high heat and humidity. The patient in our case has several of these. Strenuous exercise is the first hot day, and the pet isn't used to the heat or the activity. And there are also some common risk factors for heat stroke. Those include obesity, cardiovascular disease, upper airway abnormalities, including brachiocephalic syndrome, uh, the squish face we were talking about earlier, Mm -hmm. uh, neurologic disorders, Body weight greater than 15 kilograms. Large breed dogs are particularly at risk for developing exertional heat stroke, suggesting that the ratio between body size and the surface area is important in heat dissipation. Confinement in poor ventilation. Patients with previous episodes of heat stroke may be more susceptible because prior episodes can permanently affect the thermoregulatory center. Predisposed breeds are, oh no, gold retrievers. Yep. Labrador retrievers and brachiocephalic breeds. No sex or age predisposition has been identified.
0: It's interesting. I think that there's not really an age or sex predisposition. All of the cases of heat stroke that I have ever seen have been young dogs. Mm -hmm. And it made me wonder if maybe owners are more vigilant with their older pets, but seem to think like, meh, these young ones will probably be fine.
1: Probably that sounds about right.
0: Yeah. So it's important to remember like your young dog, like, don't just turn them outside in Alabama in the heat of the summer. Like, they could Mm -hmm. die from it. Mm -hmm. They won't just be a OK necessarily. uh, Because every single, every single case of heat stroke I've ever seen has been in a young, otherwise healthy dog. I think it's just because people don't think about it with them. Yeah. That's not to say that older pets can't get it, but I, just in my cross section of of cases, it, it seems like, um, it seems like that's been a trend of people just saying like, meh, yeah. I thought they would be okay.
1: So yeah, the patient in our case has several of these risk factors. He's obese, he's a large breed dog, and he's one of the predisposed breeds.
0: Yeah. yeah, it definitely sounds like Buck's history fits with heat stroke. And history plays a really big role in the diagnosis of heat stroke. Usually, our suspicions can be confirmed with physical examination findings, so I'm just going to review those here really quickly. Usually, the temperature in heat stroke dogs is greater than 105 degrees Fahrenheit. However, hypothermia, which is low body temperature, or normothermia, which is normal body temperature, might be present if the owner started instituting cooling measures before presentation. The most common physical exam abnormalities that we'll see include collapse or a history of collapse, tachypnea, that means increased respiratory rate, shock, spontaneous bleeding, so the patient might be vomiting blood, defecating blood, or developing petechiae. The patient might be in a stupor. They have generally elevated heart rate or tachycardia, and they're dehydrated. In one study, about 35% of heat stroke victims experience seizures at or before presentation. The mucous membrane color might vary depending on the state of shock that the patient is currently experiencing. And along with that elevated heart rate we mentioned earlier, cardiac arrhythmias might be noted.
1: Yeah, our patient, Buck, his temperature was over 105. He collapsed. He's in a stupor. He's dehydrated and has a high heart rate. All of these seem to fit with the heat stroke.
0: I agree. I agree. This is a pretty textbook case. Now, we talked a little bit earlier about how most heat stroke is just a diagnosis based on clinical presentation and history, but we do need to do some testing so that we can tailor treatment for the individual patient. The testing that we're going to want to do right away includes collecting blood, and we want to run a complete blood count. On a CBC of a heat stroke dog, you'll commonly see hemoconcentration, that's an elevated red blood cell count, thrombocytopenia, a low platelet count, and you can see either leukocytosis or leukopenia, essentially, either elevated or decreased white blood cells. Occasionally, anemia will be present, that's low red blood cells. The thrombocytopenia, as we mentioned before, is common. Also, we might see an increase in nucleated red blood cells. And in one study, 90% of the dogs with heat stroke had an increased nucleated red blood cell uh, count when they viewed a blood film. A blood film is also called a blood smear. The chemistry profiles of these dogs often show azotemia, that's elevation of the kidney values, creatinine and urea nitrogen, elevated creatinine kinase, increased liver enzymes, elevated bilirubin, and low blood sugar or hypoglycemia. Electrolyte abnormalities might also be seen. Hyperkalemia or elevated potassium is the most common of those electrolyte abnormalities. But we might also see low or high sodium, low phosphorus, and low calcium. Additionally, a coagulation profile is important. Really, it should be performed on any patient with heat stroke in a perfect world. And we're often going to see increased clotting times, so a prolonged PT and PTT. We're going to see decreased antithrombin levels and the presence of D-dimers or fibrin degradation products. All of these things together indicate DIC or disseminated intravascular coagulation. JJ, what happened when we ran some tests on BUCK?
1: So they did run some uh, in-house labs. Uh, CBC showed severe thrombocytopenia with only about uh, 40,000 platelets per microliter. Uh, For reference, a normal platelet count is over 150,000 per microliter. Patients with platelet counts less than 50,000 per microliter are at risk for spontaneous microscopic hemorrhage. And patients with a platelet count of less than 25,000 per microliter are at risk for gross spontaneous hemorrhage. His uh, BUN and creatinine are moderately elevated. And he has elevated creatinine kinase, elevated liver enzymes, and low blood sugar. His potassium is also mildly elevated. A uh, COAG panel could not be performed because he presented to a general practice that does not have this type of testing available in house. Um, this test would need to be sent to the outside lab and has a turnaround time of about two days because of the lab courier schedule.
0: Yeah. And uh, let's pause for just a second to talk about that last part. I think this is an important part when we're reviewing cases because uh, most of the time in veterinary medicine, we don't have access to all of the tests that would be ideal to perform all of the time. So in your basic average general practice, uh, I would say most of the ones that I work at could not perform clotting times in, in real time. It is possible uh, a lot of them have the machines to be able to do it, but it requires an investment in other types of, like, consumable materials that might be pretty pricey. And if you don't need to run them that often, then they can expire and it becomes a really big, you know, cost issue. I'm trying to think of all of the places that I've worked between being associate and relief. I think one has had the ability to run clotting times, and it was the ER, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, this is not very common. They're saying the turnaround time was about two days. I think most commercial labs will do it the same day that they receive it. But the problem is receiving it. Mm-hmm. Like, you have to either ship it or have the courier pick up, you know. So, in this case, like, the courier is probably going to be faster than shipping it would be. But mm-hmm. even with the courier pickup, a lot of the times they just pick up once a day at the end of the day. This patient presented after 2 p.m. anyway, so lunch pickup would have already run no matter what. So you're looking mm-hmm. at the sample going out around the time the clinic closes and maybe being run overnight. So we would not have it until the next day at the very earliest. And if this was on a Friday, we wouldn't have it until Monday or Tuesday, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, not
0: And if it was during COVID, we might not have it for a week, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, uh, and I laugh about that, but it's just the reality of it, uh, Mm -hmm. of being in veterinary medicine. So if you're ever faced with this sort of situation, calling around to see if any other practices have this type of test is a good idea. It might be that if you're ever faced with this situation, you can find someplace locally who could help you run it. But it is a little bit of an issue. Mm -hmm. It is a little bit of an issue. And uh, generally in-house, we're talking about PT and PTT. And not the other types of measures. Don't know. I don't think a full clotting profile is available as a point of care test. I don't mm. think. So it's just an important point about practicing in the real world.
1: <laughs> well, now that we know what heat stroke is, let's talk about how to treat it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So first things first, we got to cool that puppy down. Uh, so cooling therapy includes, well, first of all, the owner should try to start cooling the pet down on the way to the hospital. Um, they can use towels pre-soaked in cold water, place them on the patient, turn the air conditioner and/or open the windows on the way to the hospital. Once at the hospital, use alcohol on the foot pads, ear pinna, and in any other areas covered with thin hair, like the ventral abdomen and axillary regions. Applying cool water to the patient is recommended, but you don't want to do like freezing cold water. Patients with thick hair coats should be shaved since wet hair acts as an insulator. Uh, A use of a fan can improve heat dissipation from evaporation. Um, What you do not want to do is use ice packs or ice baths. This causes local vasoconstriction that decreases heat loss. Do not perform cold water enemas or gastric lavage. Those are totally not recommended. Uh, You want to discontinue active cooling when the temperature reaches about 102 degrees Fahrenheit. To avoid hypothermia, um, it's important to remember that cooling helps prevent further cellular destruction, but it does not result in suppression of the inflammatory response that has already started. Yep. And it looks like Buck's care team did a really good job of starting cooling as quickly as possible for this particular situation. They made some good choices by not using ice or ice packs. Um, what else should be used to manage these patients?
0: Okay. So besides cooling, what we're really talking about here is supportive care. So as JJ mentioned, cooling the patient down doesn't stop the cascade of bullshit that I talked about (laughs) earlier. Okay. So by the time the patient gets really hot, all that crap has already started to snowball. And there's not really a way to stop it in its tracks. What we have to do is know that it's going to happen and try to head it off at the pass with some supportive care. So. Things that we might want to consider providing. The first is oxygen. So you would want to provide oxygen via a face mask or nasal cannula during the cooling process. If the patients are experiencing severe laryngeal edema, they may need a tracheostomy. And in patients with severe neurologic or respiratory dysfunction, they may actually require intubation and placement on a mechanical ventilator to continue oxygenating the tissues in the body. We want to provide fluid therapy. So crystalloid fluids should be delivered IV. A lot of the time you need shock rates. The amount should be titrated to the patient's perfusion status. And some patients might even need colloid therapy if they're hypoproteinemic, or maybe even if their blood pressure is really hard to control. The crystalloid fluid therapy will help bring the temperature down, but it also helps support them by relieving that dehydration and helping support their circulating fluid volume. We need to look at providing therapy with dextrose if we have hypoglycemia. So we want to supplement glucose in those hypoglycemic patients. Hypoglycemia in heat stroke might be present from the get-go, like in Buck's case, or it could develop. So you really need to check serial blood sugars. You don't need to check it at intake, say it's normal, and then never check it again. This is something that needs to be serially monitored while the patients are being treated. And a CRI of dextrose might also be needed if the hypoglycemia is persistent. We might need to consider therapy with mannitol. It could be beneficial in patients with neurologic dysfunction from cerebral edema, that's swelling on the brain, caused by intracranial hypertension. Mannitol can also help restore urine output in patients with acute kidney injury. However, mannitol can worsen cerebral hemorrhage if that's present. Antibiotic therapy should also be considered. So patients with severe heat stroke typically do need antibiotics due to the potential for translocation of bacteria from the GI tract into the surrounding areas in the bloodstream. Broad-spectrum coverage is needed. So a combination therapy of a penicillin plus a fluorinated quinolone or a third-generation cephalosporin has been recommended in various sources. We should consider using GI protectants like proton pump inhibitors or H2 blockers to prevent GI ulceration. And we might also need to use antiemetics if we're having vomiting. We need to monitor the heart rate and place the pet on monitoring. Uh, so we need to, to kind of put them on a telemetry or a continuous ECG because we need to look for cardiac arrhythmias and treatable cardiac arrhythmias need to be treated. We need to monitor their blood pressure, and we might need to give blood products if we're having really, really severe coagulation issues. Hypotension, that's low blood pressure, that's refractory to fluid therapy, might require vasopressor therapy, drugs like dopamine, vasopressin, norepinephrine, or dobutamine. We might consider blood products like plasma, whole blood, or platelet-rich plasma, just depending on what the patient's coagulation state is. And then there's one general therapy that's not recommended for patients with heat stroke, and that's steroids. Put Mm -hmm. the steroids down for these patients. (laughs) When it's been studied, no benefits have been shown, and they're straight up not recommended. JJ, what did they do to treat BUCK?
1: They used flow by oxygen due to the tachypnea. Uh, Shock rate doses of LRS were started. Dextrose bolus was given due to the presence of hypoglycemia. And given the patient's altered mental state, mannitol administration was considered. However, the practice is only mannitol had expired three years previously. Yep. Which I feel like that's pretty common because yep, it doesn't that's get not used very often. Yep, that's not surprising. Yep. Yep. And so because the patient has started to pass bloody diarrhea, GI damage was suspected and the patient was started on IV unison and Batrol. Um, Fomotidine was administered to help reduce the risk of GI ulceration. Serenia was given because the patient had started to vomit. The patient's heart rate and rhythm were found to be normal and stable. The patient was hypotensive with a blood pressure of 80 over 45, despite aggressive fluid therapy. Crystalloid therapy was continued. Vasopressor therapy is also not available at this particular clinic, although that's pretty common as well. Yeah. The reception staff began placing calls to nearby my clinics to see if anyone had any mannitol or vasopressors that could be borrowed.
0: Yep, that all sounds like a uh, pretty pretty par for the course. Like that's mm-hmm. not that surprising. Um when a major emergency like this and heat stroke is a major emergency. Mm-hmm. When it presents to a general practice, this is this is very typical. Th- these are the sorts of issues that we can run into. Drugs that we don't use a whole lot in general practice, we might need to pull off the shelf for the first time in a long time. Mm-hmm. I think it's funny that the mannitol was expired. Like that's just like pretty common you know it's part it of the is, course there it is. yeah I mean, <laughs> just, even
1: in places that you know they do a regular inventory a lot of times they may keep it and if maybe they've made an order for a new bottle but they'll keep that bottle until that comes in especially because you never know what's going to be back ordered for these right. these days so um mm-hmm. they may keep, keep it just in case and in some cases if it's like a you know mm-hmm. It wouldn't surprise me if, if that was the only thing they had to give. They couldn't find anything else. Try giving it. but
0: Yeah, you'd have to be careful about that. Yeah. <laughs> like, you'd have to definitely counsel the owner about that, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's it's illegal to keep expired medications, although 100% of the clinics in the world do. But it's illegal. But they do. <laughs> so do it that way, you will. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so really common to need to call other veterinary hospitals to try to get medications that, you know, we don't use a lot in general practice. All of this is ultra, super common. And I think it's good for us because I feel like sometimes when we present cases, we present cases that have presented to like a, um, a specialty hospital or ones that have done like specialty level care. And so it's also good for us to talk about cases that we where we like, well, this would be ideal, but we can't do that because that's I mean, gosh, that's generally what happens. <laughs> like, this is mm-hmm. very common. Yeah, I, uh, I just want to highlight that. Like, this isn't some wacky clinic that's under, you know, that that's not being run well or anything like that. This is just like the reality of veterinary medicine right here. Mm-hmm. Like, totally. This could be a day out of my life. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, because so, I mean, you could go a whole year without and not without seeing a heat stroke. Oh, it's easily, necessarily. You know, then you'll see
0: three damn ones in a row.
1: Yep. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as you feel like you've got everybody's kind of retrained on how to handle one, everybody's mm-hmm. comfortable with them, you have all the stuff you need. Then they stop coming in.
0: That's exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> right. You're, I mean, Judge is a hundred percent. Correct. Like, it'll be, you'll go on a run of them, you'll get all the stuff. You're like, man, we're seeing a lot of these, we gotta make sure we have all the stuff. And then the second you get fully supplied, you won't see another one
1: until they till the expire. mannitol
0: expires. Yep.
1: <laughs> or turns into a giant snowflake.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, well, so... It sounds like they've got him on some some good therapy. They're trying to be proactive and get other medications that they're that they are worried that they need to the best of their ability. So let's talk about monitoring. Um, so close monitoring is needed for these patients. I don't recommend they be put in a cage. I like to set them up either in an exam room or a treatment room, and we're going to have somebody right there the whole time. The patient is most likely going to continue to develop complications of heat stroke after presentation. So you need to monitor them all the time. We need to monitor the vitals continuously. So we're talking about heart rate, respiratory rate, blood pressure, temperature. Blood sugar is also important. I would add that in there, okay? We want to do ECGs routinely or put them on telemetry if we had that. Might not have that in general practice, I understand. And then we need to set up the blood pressure monitor just to record, you know, like every five Mm -hmm. minutes, like you were doing it under anesthesia, okay? Yep. We need to see if the blood pressure is responding to our treatment. And we're going to need to do some serial laboratory testing. So blood sugar we mentioned already, but we also want to check the PCV. We want to check our COAG values just because they're normal when we come in. If we do have that ability to test in clinic, that doesn't mean four hours later they're going to be normal, right? Mm -hmm. They can continue to worsen. And then we want to do some serial CBCs and chemistry profiles to look and see what sorts of other changes we're seeing that we need to react to. We should also measure urine output, and that's one that I think people accidentally skip over a lot. In patients that are intubated, you know, we're going to need to place a urinary catheter, but we need to make sure that these patients are producing urine and an expected amount of urine based on the amount of fluids that we're giving because the danger of kidney injury is just so high and on multiple fronts with these patients. So, JJ, how was Buck's monitoring handled?
1: So, he was not placed in a cage, but placed on a blanket in the middle of the treatment area for easy access. I love it. He had a team of two assistants assigned to his case, and vitals including heart rate, respiratory rate, blood pressure, and temperature were collected every five minutes. Um, meanwhile, the doctor discussed Buck's prognosis and treatment needs with the owner.
0: Okay.
1: Speaking of prognosis.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about the prognosis of heat stroke. So it's not as good as one would
1: hope. It's not predictable either.
0: <laughs> yeah. So the prognosis can vary depending on the severity of initial signs and how well responding to therapy. But overall mortality rates, that means the percentage of dogs that die is 50 to 56 percent. That's like, that's a lot. Like that Mm -hmm. is a high mortality rate, 50 percent or more. I mean, you might as well be doing GDV surgery. You know what I'm saying? Like, Mm -hmm. like this is bad. Like, this is bad. Now, in studies on heat stroke, some poor prognostic indicators have been identified and I want to go through those. So. I'm going to list them. These are things that if they're present, the dog has a worse prognosis or a higher chance of death, okay? Those things are the pet being in a coma, delayed admission to the hospital more than 90 minutes after occurrence of the first symptoms, the presence of seizure activity, the presence of kidney injury, and I want to talk about that for just a second. So in one study, about one third of the dogs developed acute renal failure, and this was found to be a significant risk factor for death. And in another study, a higher serum creatinine concentration was positively correlated with the outcome of death, meaning dogs with higher serum creatinine were more likely to die. DIC is also a risk factor for death. Being hypothermic, so your temperature is low at the time of presentation those patients don't do as well. And then interestingly, the number of nucleated red blood cells is a prognostic indicator. So, the nucleated red blood cells increase in dogs with kidney disease or DIC, and this increase is correlated with a higher chance of death. And one way you can take a look at this is by doing a ratio of the nucleated red blood cells to total like leukocytes. So, Essentially, if you're seeing uh, for every 100 leukocytes that you see, if you're seeing more than 18 nucleated red blood cells, then we have a 91 percent sensitivity and 88 percent specificity for subsequent death of the patient. Interesting. So you probably hmm. should be doing blood smears on everybody. And then you would just look and you would just count like each high powered field until you got to 100 leukocytes. And then however many nucleated red blood cells you saw on those fields, if it's higher than 18, that dog has a high chance of dying. Isn't that interesting? Yes. That's crazy.
1: I want to, like, any heat stroke now, I want to do a slide on it. You should.
0: You absolutely should. You absolutely should. Okay, so hypoglycemia, low blood sugar at presentation, is associated with an increased chance of death. And then elevation of PT and PTT on a coagulation profile has been associated with a higher chance of death. In one study, most non-survivors either died or were euthanized in the first 24 to 48 hours after presentation. Those dogs who survived to day three of hospitalization typically end up recovering.
1: Unfortunately for Buck, um, he had several of the poor prognostic indicators that we just discussed including delayed admission to the hospital, elevated creatinine, and hypoglycemia. Buck's owner was very hesitant to believe that heat stroke was the correct diagnosis. Uh, The, The owner insisted that the pet was having seizures and that the pet should be given diazepam. The veterinarian refused. No seizure activity had been observed. Even if seizures were originally present, they were not present now, and therefore diazepam would not be of benefit and the owner became belligerent and yelled at the veterinary staff to save his dog right now. The veterinarian reiterated that the patient had essentially a textbook case of heat stroke and that everything that could be done in a general practice was currently being done. The veterinarian advised that transfer to an emergency critical care facility was possible, but the closest facility was two hours away, and it was likely the pet would not survive the car trip. Additionally, the owner had severe financial constraints, And the treatment at the emergency critical care facility was estimated to go into the $3,000 to $5,000 range for the first uh, one to two days of treatment with no guarantee of survival. Hmm. During this discussion, the veterinarian was paged by the assistant monitoring the patient. Buck was now vomiting blood, and the assistant had noticed small red blotches on his abdomen, which was petechia. Also, his latest blood glucose reading was in the 50s again. Buck was in need of blood products as well as a continuous infusion of dextrose to manage his hypoglycemia. However, the owner did not have the financial means to provide this care. The owner declined to apply for a payment plan because it would involve a credit check. And after further discussion, the owner requested to spend a few minutes with the patient. The owner was escorted to the treatment area to see Buck. And after watching the treatment and monitoring for a few minutes, the owner elected humane euthanasia for the patient. Ultimately, the owner refused to believe that heat stroke was the correct diagnosis because he believed Pet would have let him know if the exercise was too much. The owner stated that if heat stroke was a cause, then it would be his fault but Buck died. The owner declined necropsy of the patient.
0: Oh, That's very sad. Mm-hmm. That's very sad. You know, it would have been a long way back for Buck. It sounds like he was continuing to decompensate after mm-hmm. being worked on for a while and that the amount of care that he needed was outpacing what they could provide in the general practice and also what the owner could provide financially. Mm -hmm. Those are always really tough situations. I think it's interesting that the owner sort of refused to accept the diagnosis of heat stroke. Almost going back to the topic that we discussed last week of
1: Mm -hmm. owners sort
0: of kind of just kind of picking something to believe because it's convenient, you know, but... yeah. That, I'm sure, was really stressful for the veterinarian and the veterinary staff, especially to be yelled at to save the dog right now, because you're already doing everything you can. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's really sad. But I think ultimately, you know, a good decision was made. If further care couldn't be continued, then he was going to have a really terrible death. So Mm -hmm. pursuing humane euthanasia was probably a good decision for this case. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I Agreed. Yeah, and I mean, and realistically, the owner was not aware that what he was doing was not a good idea.
0: Mm-mm. Do you mean by like running him in in the heat yeah. and all that? Yeah,
1: I mean, obviously, if he thought that was going to cause this sort of issue, he wouldn't have done it. Sure, I don't yeah. doubt that he definitely cared about his dog, and I don't think that you know blame or finger pointing should happen. In this case, but obvious, it sounds like he was feeling some guilt. So I think mm-hmm. it definitely was a case of he didn't want to believe that he was the sort of the cause of this, the situation through no fault. It was just an error in judgment and right one that he learned from, I hope. And
0: yeah. yeah.
1: It's just that on all fronts.
0: Like you said, it sounds like he, he knows, but he just doesn't want to.
1: Yeah. He doesn't. He hasn't accepted.
0: Right, right. Especially the owner owner stated that if heat stroke was the cause, then it, quote, would have been his fault that Buck Mm -hmm. died.
1: Yeah, that's what I was keying on because I was like, it sounds like he knows, but he just hasn't accepted it. And that acceptance would would come, and that's probably when it's going to be the worst part of it. But I think maybe some reassurance of like, look, it's, nobody's at fault it's it's it sucks it's happened and now you know in the future not to do this but i don't know i would i would tend to have a little bit more empathy for that particular client just Mm -hmm. i mean his behavior is not excused by any means but i could you know i have a little bit easier time being forgiving if i can understand where the behavior is coming from and in this case i can understand it
0: right right Right. I agree with you. I have an easier time being like, meh, uh, you know, this person is just upset when it's a life or death thing like this. Like if someone is acting, if someone is really acting out, but it's because their pet is currently dying and they feel powerless, I, uh, I can understand that a lot more. Than if we're like have a well pet on an annual exam and the person is flipping out about like heartworm prevention or something like I yeah. do not have patience for that at all. But on this, I mean, that doesn't make it easier for the staff to deal with necessarily, but mm-hmm. like um, I think it's easier to to kind of understand, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. looking back. That's a tough one. Mm-hmm. That's a tough one. In this case, is kind of on the sad side. Sometimes, though, we have to present sad cases because that's what life is like. I mean, mm-hmm. we want the podcast to be realistic and we always use real cases. So, you know, this is definitely a real world type of case in a lot of different ways, from testing availability to drug availability to the fact that the patients don't always live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sucks. But but this is the reality.
1: Unfortunately. Mm hmm.
0: I also do think that it's really common for owners to sort of be in denial about diagnoses and prognoses, especially for preventable illnesses like heat stroke. Mm -hmm. So, in this case, if the owner had admitted that heat stroke was the real problem, I think he would have been forced to sort of deal with those feelings. Shame and grief surrounding the death of the pet. Mm -hmm. And those are hard things to face. Yep. So heat stroke is to some degree preventable. JJ. Yeah. How can heat stroke be prevented?
1: <laughs> Do not confine your animals to vehicles or other spaces like cages on hot human days. Mm-hmm. Hot, humid, hot or humid days. I think I said human instead of humid. <laughs> don't you Don't you put them in no a cage during days. a humid day? Right. No peopling allowed. Um, do not leave animals unattended when using dryers after bathing. Yes, please, for the love. Keep animals indoors on hot days. and Make sure they have access to shade and water at all times when they are outside. Definitely want to avoid heavy exercise on hot or humid days. And it may be helpful for veterinary clinics to utilize social media uh, to post about the dangers of heat stroke, especially during the times when the weather is getting hotter.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that's obviously going to vary depending on your location and your climate, but like... Down
1: here in the seventh layer of Hades, <laughs>
0: Right, in <laughs> Alabama in the <laughs> flipping summertime. So I feel like, and I, this is not based on science, this is just anecdotal, but I feel like the heat stroke cases that I've seen have tended to cluster around early spring for us, so like those first really nice days when it gets over 80 degrees.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: or The incredibly hot days, you know, like Mm -hmm. where last week, week, yeah, like where we're rocking around, you know, today, I think it's in the upper 80s outside, you know, it's a hot day, Mm -hmm. but it's August. We've kind of had several months to acclimate to it being really hot and that sort of thing. But if all of a sudden that needle jumps up to 97, you know, it's those days now the heat index is one hundred and five, you know, or something Mm -hmm. like that. And I tend to think of those as happening like. August and September, you know, mm-hmm. here in Alabama, in North Alabama, anyway, <laughs> South Alabama, it might be that hot all the time. <laughs> but uh, I tend to see two clusters, though, early spring, like around the first days of it being warm. And then it w- when it gets like super effing hot and gross and humid outside um, around this time of year,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I've also seen, gosh, I've seen dogs uh, with heat stroke that were confined to a garage. Mm hmm. That was especially traumatizing. Mm hmm. Because, again, the owners thought that the pets would be OK. You know, mm-hmm. they thought it's a garage. It'll be fine. Garages get hot as hell. So yeah, they do. So no garages. Certainly we've all seen people leave their pets in cars, you know, and even if you leave the air conditioner on, you can run out of gas. It mm-hmm. can break. I mean, shit happens. Like, so just don't do it. You know, like, just don't do it.
1: Don't do it. Just don't do it. Leave foo-foo at home in your air-conditioned house. Mm-hmm. Preferably where somebody may be at home in case your yeah. air-conditioning your house goes out.
0: Right. And if you live where we live, like, <laughs> you put a damn ceiling fan on. <laughs> you know, like, uh-huh. make sure we have water all the time. You know, and all of those things. Because uh, it's devastating. And then... Mm-hmm. I guess the other one that I see a lot is brachycephalic breeds that someone lets them out to go to the bathroom and forgets. Yep. I've seen that a lot.
1: Yeah. They go down in a hurry. They can't, they, do. they can barely tolerate a walk from the door to the car.
0: That's true. That's true. So the one I've seen a lot would be like the teenage kid. The teenage <laughs> mm-hmm. kid gets home from school. The dog walks out. They let it out. They get distracted. They go up, they play video games. hours before someone's missing the dog and they find it dead in the yard i mean Mm -hmm. i've seen that so many times you know so just making sure i think everybody in the household needs to be educated about this like you know hey just make sure if you let the dog out a hunt you go out there with it Mm -hmm. if it's so hot that you don't want to be out there with it it don't need to be outside either (laughs) you know what i'm saying yep like (laughs) like if Like, if you go out there and stand where the dog is running around and you're like, dear Jesus, this is super hot. I got to go inside. The dog needs to go inside with you. Okay? That's important. Mm. And I thought it was interesting that when I was researching this that dogs that have a history of heat stroke have a higher history of heat stroke later. Mm -hmm. And, JJ, you were telling me about your own dog that that happened to.
1: Yeah. um, Oddly enough, the the first time he had a heat stroke, I was walking with a veterinarian, and it was kind of one of those feels where it was like one of the first days of spring that it was warm enough to kind of go outside. And it wasn't like terribly, terribly hot, but he was used to being in an air-conditioned department. And we went for a walk, and we were working on kind of his socialization and some training. And I just, the only, the only thing that I noticed was that his mouth was about as wide open as he could get it and that tongue was hanging out as far as it would possibly go. And I'm like, that's not his normal panting. Right. And she kind of thought that it was okay. She was like, "Well, we haven't been out here for very long." And I'm like, "Yeah, but I mean, we literally made one lap." Yeah. And I was like, "I just I don't I don't feel right about it. I'm going to um I'm going to run him back to the apartment and just check his temperature." She's like, "Yeah, okay, cool. If it's okay, just come on back. I'll still be here." If it's not okay, let me know and I'll meet you at the clinic. Mm-hmm. So I got him home and this was a while back ago because I had a mercury, one of those glass mercury thermometers <laughs> and I took his temperature and that sucker like was off the end of the thermometer. I'm like, uh, not good. So I'm like, you know, panicking and I get her, get, get him to the clinic, get a hold of her and. Uh, we did fluids and uh, this particular, I mean, this was a, a very rural clinic, so they didn't have yeah. a whole lot to, to work with. I don't even think we did lab work. Basically, I got him cooled down and um, he did well and he didn't have any issues. So I'm like, that's OK, good. cool. Yeah, sounds like I you just,
0: caught it early.
1: I think if I had just not listened to my instincts, it would have gone a lot worse. Yeah, But sure enough, like. It was not very long later. There was like a cold front that came through. It was probably a month or so. And it was like 50 degrees outside. And I picked a different park that, uh, because this first park, it was under direct sunlight. It was like a a big like football field with a track around it. Mm -hmm. This one was um, very shady. It was in the woods. And there was a breeze. I mean, I was cold. And I took him, I didn't even make a full lap, and he started doing the same thing. So I ran him to the clinic because I was closer to the clinic that time. And I think his temperature was like 106. Oh, wow. 105, 106.
0: And it was 50 degrees outside? Yep. That's I crazy. Think some of
1: his issues were also due to some anxiety. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. But or were you guys that, exercising like really strenuously? No. I mean, you know me, I've got the top <laughs> speed of... You know, turtle stampeding through peanut butter when it comes to exercising. So, yeah, um, no, it, there was no strenuous anything to it because I was That's watching so him really close. Wow. And yeah, he, I got him cooled down. His temperature came down really quick. Like I got a little worried because it came down really quick. So I, but I kept checking it to see if it went back up. It didn't. He seemed fine. So the only thing is, like not long after that, like within the year, he started having seizures. Oh and so i always wondered if they were connected he never had any issues with anything other than the seizures and hmm. he didn't have them often enough to require like phenobarbital or anything like that but they were kind of predictable like if there was a big cold front coming through i knew he would probably have one and of course if he was if something was really stressful for him and then usually if he'd go, fall asleep, he would wake up having one. But the only thing that I could usually predict anything about him was if there was a, a big cold front coming through, like a big drop in pressure. Mm-hmm. But I also have noticed that anytime we have animals coming in that have cluster seizures, a lot of times it's around the same the same thing, the, the pressure dropping. Because I always paid attention to that because of him. And I'm like, it's kind of interesting how that happens. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's so interesting. I almost wonder if your dog had, you know, some other issue going on. You know, like could be I uh, mean. something affecting the thermoregulatory center in the brain. Because, like, that's so strange for it to happen at fifty yeah. degrees ambient temperature. That's weird. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: He's interesting a technician dog. So there's no telling. He had right. all kinds of. He
0: probably had some sort of bizarre gene mutation <laughs> that yeah, it created. I know.
1: Which I was like, I got him from the pound to avoid that sort of thing. <laughs> but yeah,
0: great. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think was it a was it a lab?
1: Uh, he was a uh, Golden Retriever Chow mix. Okay, guessing that's what he looked like. I mean, he really he looked like a Golden Retriever body with a Chow kind of face, mm-hmm. only a slightly longer nose.
0: That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is something called. I believe exercise-induced hyperthermia that's different from heat stroke. Um, but I think it's a disease of labs. Mm. Well, I mean, i am it's a genetic disease, I'm sure. Yeah. It's so interesting.
1: Which, I yeah. mean, he played hard sometimes inside and never had a problem. Like, I mean, I'm like throwing things, playing with him. He's running, jumping on the couch, jumping on the floor, running around, laps around the house. That's never so had a problem. Hmm. But you That's know, so if it's strange. one of our animals. They can't it's have, gonna have Some normal. weird bullshit. Okay. Yeah. It's just. A
0: <laughs> yeah. So, um, so there is. We should probably have added this to our differential diagnosis earlier. But so, yeah, this dog was a lab. But um, mm-hmm. there is a genetic mutation in Labrador retrievers that can create exercise-induced collapse. And uh, sometimes hyperthermia is associated with that. Hmm. So that's interesting.
1: He could have had lab in him. But there's no telling yeah. what I was in that woodpile.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we'll throw that one in as a as a uh, possible differential too. Mm-hmm. And really, though, they might be difficult to, to to you know like they might tell be the difficult to tell the difference between because. Yeah, You know, uh, at a certain point, ha- when your body gets hot, the same crap happens regardless of like the, mm-hmm. you know, the cause or whatever. <laughs> so anyway. Okay. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, it's time for us to wrap up. If you have stories, questions, concerns, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at com.
1: And you can find us on social media on Instagram and Facebook, and it's at introvets.
0: And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.